Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. I am so, this is so exciting for me. I have Heather Hauser, who is an award-winning scholar, professor of English at the University of Texas with us. Um, Heather also holds affiliations with American Studies, Center for Women's and Gender Studies, and the Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice. Heather is also co-founder of Planet Texas 2050 that we'll hear a little bit about in our conversation. It's my great pleasure to talk with and learn from Heather Hauser for this episode of Into the Coliverse podcast. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much, Frederick, for, for having me in the Coliverse. I guess I'm always in the Coliverse to some extent, but to talk in this, in this venue with you, it's great. Great to see and hear from you. So I want to hear about what was kind of in the air that you were breathing as, I don't know, a young Heather and that kind of led you to literature. I know you ended up at Reed College and then Stanford and um, ultimately your incredible research that brings together the sciences, humanities, and technology studies, affect theory, all of these incredible areas that were really pushing the boundaries of understanding us and us on the planet, us together. How did this start to kind of shape? What is it? A, yeah. Tell us about your journey, Heather. <laughs> yeah. In the keep my eye on the time so I don't go too long on this. It's, um, I would say I, I'll start with literature because I feel you know, all those other things came much later. I had no science interest background. Um, I work in environmental humanities now. And by background, I mean, like, as a kid, I wasn't into those things. Um, I grew up in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, mostly, which for those who don't know, it's just a uh, a rural, well, rural isn't exactly right. It's um, it's a um, now a major like recreation tourist site and was even when I was growing up, but it's become more so. And it's really beautiful. It's on the Appalachian Trail. A lot of people come to like hike and swim and go on the Delaware River, but I didn't do any of those things. So like the environmental part of my life didn't really come from that time of my life, but it was there in the background. Um, my family was not, they were not big readers. So I'm the first in my family to love literature, to um, really be drawn to sort of an intellectual life. I'm the first to go to college in my family and then all the things that come after college. Um, so I'd say in some respects that came from uh, some that is my love of literature sort of turning to it from some turmoil. I mean, it, I had a bit of an unstable upbringing in a lot of ways. And I think I was drawn to reading as kind of a place to hide, um, a place to go into um, when things seemed uncertain around me. Um, and just a place to imagine other worlds. You know, I, I was not a writer. I didn't like write fiction or anything as a little kid, really. But 
just inhabiting other worlds and other stories really, I think, drew me in partly because there were some uncertainties and instabilities in my own life. But I think there's just like, uh, a, I was a quiet kid, you know, I, I, I think there were aspects of, and just like the tangibility of reading, like holding something. I think there were just uh, aspects of what reading feels like that fit me, right? Beyond some utilitarian, um, like, let me escape to this world kind of um, perspective on it. Um, and were then, there any, yeah, let me, let me ask you, were there, did you have any, um, I don't know, favorites, favorites that you might have even returned to later on as a scholar? Of, um, oh, wow. Actually, I don't, <laughs> that's interesting because I am. <laughs> okay. um, so, well, as my favorites as kind of like a preteen when I was reading longer books, um, like I loved the Anne of Green Gables series. I loved like um, The Secret Garden by Frances Hudson Burnett and her other books, um, sort of these late Victorian uh, narratives. I don't work on that. I actually haven't. I end up reading now Victorian novels as kind of pleasure reading because I don't re work on them mm. and didn't really have them in my college education either. So I don't return to that except that I kind of used in my scholarly work, but I, I like these big, uh, large plotted, large character <laughs> novels as a source of um, escape and kind of filling gaps and curiosity about uh a literary period I didn't in really spend much time in as a scholar. Um, but I then turned to uh, the Beats and like people like Hemingway. I actually just re recently wrote an essay that maybe someday someone will publish <laughs> um, called Girliness in the Big Dick Canon. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on here, but um, you can just call it girliness. It's, it's kind of about being shamed about my love of people like, or books like Anne of Green Gables and being told like, well, if you're serious, you should read Hemingway. So I did. <laughs> and then I started to read The Beats and Norman Mailer, you know, all these white, highly masculine, um, often misogynist uh, writers, but I really got into it. And again, I don't go back to that in my scholarship, but it really was the gateway for me of like um, seeing literature as a quote unquote serious um, pursuit. And, you know, what I work on now is quite different from that, but I do see that was despite the source of it, which was sort of like the shaming of reading girly literature. Um, it did really open up this world of like, oh, reading is a is a valid pursuit. It's something that you could do beyond just leisure or pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh gosh, it's so funny because I was a big sci-fi kind of nerd um, as a teen, but my librarian also introduced me to some of those big like George Eliot Middlemarch novels oh, yeah. and all sorts. And I, I love those novels. It's like, I, there was something about those long, large kind of multi or these like really thick plotted yeah. narratives that still to this day, 
even though I don't have the time. <laughs> I, I love um, I love that deep, long-lasting engagement with fiction. Um, so was it at Stanford then that you kind of came into this this incredible space of, you know, affect, um, technology studies, environmental humanities. Um, yeah. Tell, tell me. Yeah, it was. So I went to read college and they make you write a thesis, which I put that to maybe negatively because I really, uh, fell into that process, like really learned that I love to research and write long things. So, um, but I was focused then I mean, I would say what has endured from that time in my life till now is I was focused on contemporary fiction, and um, that's also what I work on now. But back then, I wrote a thesis on Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses and was interested in post-colonial theories. And uh, I'd say I was a theory head back then, <laughs> uh, just like totally fell in love with really complex uh, theoretical concepts and readings. And then I, I spent three years not in school doing other things, but I stayed in Portland, Oregon, where Reed is. And um, it was in that time, those three years, that I became much more invested in like environmental issues from a pretty urban perspective. I mean, I love to hike in Oregon and get outside, um, which I hadn't done in the Poconos, but I picked it up there in, in Oregon. But it was living in Portland that I started to think more about environmental issues. I mean, it's a city known for things like its great transit system. It's also known, though, as like a city that uh, grew in its wealth because of logging and like clear cutting was really visible and really an issue that um, I became interested in. So like. I think that was activated, sort of an, an environmental interest was activated in my years after college. And then when I started grad school, I had no sense I was going to bring that into my work. But um, Ursula Heisa was at Stanford at the time, and she's one of the, if not founders, because those are words, you know, that are tricky to use, but one of like the brightest lights of like environmental criticism then and now. Um, and so I, I was in her presence and learning so much from her. I was living in California where, again, there's a very strong environmental movement um, and a strong like relationship to the outdoors and, and that convergence. So at some point when you have to decide what to write a, a dissertation on, I didn't know. Like I came in thinking I'd work on post-colonial theory and literature and and then I was like, no, I'm not working on that for a lot of reasons and had a hard time deciding what to work on a, a do as a dissertation, but decided to fuse sort of this personal and political interest in the environment, environmental issues with my academic work, which I both advise and do not advise people to do like the way that then you know, your work becomes so much of yourself, but it, it seemed like a good idea. And I still think it was a good idea. So I, yeah, I developed a dissertation um, working with Ursula Heisa and um, that was thinking about how contemporary literature, memoirs, and novels represent the environment in terms of sickness and how we can understand um, like damaged bodies, quote unquote, damaged bodies, and also damaged ecosystems through similar conceptual and narrative structures. 
And also at my time at Stanford, um, CNI was working, was uh, on the faculty when I started, though she, she moved um, in my time there. So, and she was one of, you know, these, uh, and remains one of these brilliant scholars of affect theory. And, you know, just being around her ugly feelings, her book, Ugly Feelings came out my first year at Stanford. So it's just a lot of energy around affect theory. Um, so, I mean, that did not come from my own life. Although I joke that I'm very bad at expressing and like having emotions. <laughs> so like my work was uh, maybe a compensation thinking about emotion and feeling and not being able to ex express it as well as I wanted to at times. Um, but yeah, it, so I was very much influenced by the scholars at Stanford and also especially with the environmental humanities, like by my own investments beyond the academy at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so important for um, your work here. So important to put a focus or shift direction to the ways our, our bodies um, and the environment are so interrelated. I know, I, you know, for, for me personally on a, on a personal level, it has, you know, growing up with the in California where in rural California where they sprayed pesticides, not only kind of in our backyards, but also across the, the fence from our playgrounds. Yeah. You know, I still I suffer like my I'm so messed up in terms of immunocompromised. <laughs> I carry that eco sickness uh, with me. Is there an, is there a in your work here, I know you you look at David Foster Wallace and Leslie Marmon Silco. Um, what I know you and I are and others are acutely aware of body and environment, but um, within that space, are there things that we can do collectively to kind of open spaces for eco wellness? And maybe this is where your info whelm uh, comes in. Um, I know you talk about all sorts of things, including oil spills and data collection and the arts, but is, is, there, is there a space that you see clearing in and through the literature and the arts that can show us a possible future that isn't sick? Mm. Well, that isn't sick at all. I don't I don't know, um, but the, I mean, I think a lot of the, well, trying to think of the, the books in eco-sickness, but um, just speaking more broadly, um, you know, alongside the, the, there are often aren't redemptive, purely healing narratives in the things I work it on, you know, for example, Almanac of the Dead um, by Leslie Marmon Silko. Um, you know, Ceremony has their prior novel, much earlier novel has much more of a healing narrative than Almanac of the Dead has. And I do think a lot of contemporary writers in America and in other um, national contexts, like they're not sure that there's really going to be healing in some comprehensive purifying sense. And I think they don't, most of them don't want that kind of optimism that seems beyond um, possibility, but carving out um, within, you know, trying to ameliorate and um, 
and things like, you know, pesticide pollution, things like extraction that leads to a lot of health and other consequences, you know, they're certainly invested in thinking of those political and public health actions, but also just where's the beauty <laughs> and like, you know, not wanting to sacrifice um, some of the more maybe healing or joy producing aspects of our surroundings while at the same time recognizing that they are contaminated or compromised and might not be, um, you know, completely brought back to whatever ideal someone might have. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of amazing um, environmental nonfiction that thinks about this as well, or represents like this, these combinations of here is a you know, an, a damaged ecosystem that has also damaged bodies, but but where is the beauty in that, or where is the curiosity in in those spaces? Um, where have people made their livings and lives in these places, regardless? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically, like contamination doesn't mean um, or or damage or whatever words might be relevant doesn't mean it's sort of a a wasted land. Um, there's yeah. a scholar and a saying who has this, um, among others, talks about like blasted landscapes that, you know, sort of finding a way to live in these blasted landscapes, how people have for like generations um, as, and not just thinking of them as sort of gone and mm -hmm. totally in terms of loss. Um, with Infowelm, that was something, my, my second book, something I was really interested in is like, how are both authors and visual artists um, thinking about loss and, and actually thinking about loss in terms of like data and scientific concepts as well? Um, so I think that idea of loss is really, obviously it's very important to environmental thought, but people I think are trying to find what's, what remains within the lost as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you um, actually the title of one of your, say, public more public facing scholarly pieces is "Climate Writing Stuck." Yeah, um, kind of struck, struck, you know, um, jumped out at me. But also, your eyes wide open, critical optimism, um, in, you know, in the Planet Texas twenty fifty work. Um, it seems appropriate as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about you know both. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd say um, really around the time of working on InfoElm, which came out in 2020, I became more invested in um, writing for a variety of audiences. And part of that was I, in 2017, along with uh, colleagues from across UT, like um, uh, the natural sciences, engineering, geosciences, um, others in COLA, architecture, a whole very... Um, multidisciplinary team, we created this, uh, where we were selected to create this um, grand challenge initiative to really think about what is happening in Texas around climate change, um, thinking about infrastructure, ecosystems, you know, public health as much as much as we could encompass. And what are some of the strategies that, you know, people, communities can, can implement to address that? Um, 
and that was a, it is because it's ongoing. I'm no longer on the um, directing team, but really is trying to bring like our scholarly questions and methods in, in um, dialogue with communities that are facing these, these climate impacts. So that inherently has this like public dimension, even as much as it's very rooted in, um, you know, in scholarly worlds as well with scholarly outcomes. So um, yeah, I think the, you know, it, it's just become working on environmental issues, I think, but it's not the only uh, area of work, but it's one of those where you're sort of often drawn to think about how your ideas are communicated into the public, how they might matter, or maybe how they don't, and like how to reframe them so they they do. And um, that's an ongoing project for me, but it was certainly catalyzed or reinforced working in, on Planet Texas 2050 um, and then some of the writing I've been doing in the past four, four or so years. Um, mm-hmm. And some of that like publicness can also mean like just your, your colleagues, right. You know, people who aren't versed in the same things you're versed in. Um, it's still an academic community, but like realizing the way you talk about say a concept like resilience and all the critiques, you know, about that are not there maybe in, in another discourse in another community, and it might be quite different, you know, in like a frontline community that has real problems with the idea of resilience. So it's like, you know, that that publicness kind of opened up um, both within my U- UT Austin uh, sphere, but then also, you know, working in Austin, the city and Texas more broadly. So should one have kids despite climate change? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I um I don't give answers to that question. I more think about how people are thinking about that question. Um mm. I do think, I mean, I I am interested that is one of the book projects I'm working on is sort of like what happens to questions about reproduction in the face of climate crisis but also in the face of the long history of like eugenics and population control in the name of the environment. Um, And so, I mean, I personally do not have children, but it was not initially an environmental decision. It had a million other sources that remained strong. And then also the environmental came in like in my late twenties, it was not an impetus. I've never wanted kids. I would say since I was not a kid, um, but now, you know, there's this very vocal community that's like child free for climate. And some people are like, that's what I am, period. And this is why I think about it. And other people are do have a more like advocacy bent. And that's just not mine. I think it's worth, you know, thinking about why people are facing that question and the histories that question's embedded in. And then how like artists uh, and writers, uh, you know, of all stripes, like are also thinking about that question of family and reproduction and kinship in like speculative forms, you know, and, and maybe more realist forms. Um, so, yeah, I, I won't answer that question <laughs> um, as like a, a dictate for someone else, but um, I will 
probe the question because I think especially young people, I mean, you know, we work with people in ages 18 and up, of course, but like a real concentrated population of late teens and 20s people who are definitely thinking about this a lot. And climate's not the only question on their minds, of course. It's economy and and racism and just a whole lot of things where they're like, what is this world, right? Um, So yeah, it's something I actually encounter in more casual ways, um, working with that population, as well as like thinking about it in in these more... um, you know, scholarly, artistic, and historical ways. Heather, it's really interesting that, um, I mean, we open the paper, we don't even have to open a newspaper or turn on the news. We walk outside our doors in in places like Austin, but, you know, everywhere in the world today, um, everywhere. And summers aren't summers anymore. Uh, winters uh, don't feel like winters anymore. It, it literally is impossible to deny climate change. And I don't necessarily want us to kind of go down the rabbit hole of the, the debates here, but um, gosh, you know, um, we have this, we have monkeypox now kind of on the, you know, right on the coattail of COVID-19, you know, where, what can your research kind of open us to see? Um, And even beyond the research, you know, what might we be thinking we need to be doing? I mean, you mentioned um, supporting and getting involved um, so there's that, of course. Um, but yeah, what, how, where are we with all of this? <laughs> you know, for as much as I work on this stuff some days, and this might be one of them, I, you know, I definitely struggle with those questions too. Like nothing, um, I was recently, well, one of the things I've noted this summer, and I actually just wrote an op-ed about it, <laughs> and like, you'll hear a theme, right? Like, of, and I'm sure you are like this too, right? Like we write through a lot of our thoughts, um, even if it doesn't land somewhere, right? It's like a way of grappling with these things. But one of the things I've noticed this summer um, is people are talking climate crisis and changes they're noticing to me in a way they never have. I mean, like I'm in a community of people who talk about these things all the time for different reasons, but like my brother and his like 70 year old business partner and like my friend who owns a lot of real estate in Austin, like people who are not climate deniers, although my brother's business partner apparently was, but like um, just really uh, who have not denied that climate change is happening, but are like you're saying, like really feeling it this year. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, also thinking about that moment, this moment that we're in of like how not to slip into despair or like that there can only be one action and it's the right one. And if it doesn't happen, then everyone gives up. Like if one bill doesn't pass, like we have to throw everything away, away, but like, you know, continuing these conversations and thinking about the actions that would matter to each individual. So like, where my brother is in 
uh, Norfolk, Virginia is very different maybe than where I am in Austin, Texas and who I am as a, as a professor versus he works in construction and, and, and that kind of work. So like, to me, it's about continuing if there is, as it seems to me, um, what Lauren Berlant calls an intimate public <laughs> forming that is like curious and really, like you said, you don't even have to open the newspaper necessarily to really feel and know things are happening, but they're not necessarily part of like a political movement or even want to be. And it's so like to me, uh, I mean, I have like a wish list, a dream list of like things that might happen. Um, like things like stopping fossil fuel subsidies, right? Like that would be a really great big thing. It's not in the um, Budget Reconciliation Act, which actually, you know, as compromise continues to support oil and gas leases. But there are a lot of things that are touching people who haven't been on the front lines and in those first impacted communities who are like finding what matters to them and finding like, how that can be galvanized, right? That sort of intimate public um, and turned into whatever fits more locally for them. I don't know, like, um, you know, revolution is an option, but I don't see it on the horizon at the moment. <laughs> so these um, these more local um, yeah, responses and how people can manifest that um, in ways that matter to them is something I'm you know, thinking about now more than ever, in addition to the, yeah, these big, like, what's, what's in front of Congress, who's on the ballot box, right? You know, like, what do I do day to day? Those are, are always still relevant, but um, yeah, Heather, seeing you, this public and seeing what happens with it is, is where I'm at at the moment. You mentioned um, in our conversation earlier, you're working on something that's a little more personal, a book. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> Yeah, I can try. I was trying this morning and kind of ran up against walls. <laughs> but um, um, I'm thinking of it as a book of personal essays. It might have a solid narrative arc or a coherent narrative arc, but it might be more a set of essays, which is what it is now, that um, I might call striving, um, which is really thinking about some of the things we started thinking about, which is how did I get where I am? And that is a way of thinking about class and how I find class markers as they are traditionally used don't really fit me or so many fit me. Um, it's hard to know, like, it's not an identity in, in that uh I am this kind of sense, but it's much more shimmering, uh, a term I used in another essay I wrote. Um, so it's a way of thinking about class, thinking about education and gender and the importance of books and also dance. We didn't talk about that, but dance has always been an important part of my life and kind of like envisioning other futures for myself, um, but also being very like aware of where I come from. And for me, that's thinking about the Poconos. It's thinking about some of the uh, financial and other instabilities of growing up and really thinking about my dad as another striver, <laughs> um, to use that term, but someone who like went about it in very different ways. So as you can tell, I haven't quite found the way to encapsulate this, but it's certainly about, yeah, 
class and gender and books and dance is like my quick way of, of characterizing it. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, yeah, no, it sounds um, like it's going to be absolutely remarkable, stunning, like all of your work, all that you oh, do. Well. Um, I'm not um, so confident in this, but I am loving doing it. So I'm just running with that, right? It doesn't matter where it goes, maybe, but um, just really it's feeling, you know, like a, a good thing for me to do. And we'll see what happens with it in the world. Heather, you mentioned at the very beginning, um, you know, some of these these large plotted novels. Um, you mentioned Anne of Green Gables and, and others. What are you, you know, this is the crazy question, right? We always, we're, we teach in literature departments and yet, like, I'm not sure the last time I actually read something where I didn't have my pencil out, you know, oh, taking notes. Um, yeah. But what are you, are you able to, and if so, what, what, what was something that was kind of exciting for you? Or maybe it's narrative in other forms, like, I don't know, TV or platform streaming or whatever. But yeah, what's on the proverbial bedside table for you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm actually not at my bedside, but I just grabbed a book. I've been reading from it um, to move to another room in the house. So one of the ways I get away with or get away from the pencil is um, reading yeah, big old novels I'm not likely to work on <laughs> or teach. Um, so my most recent one was Bronte's Follette, which is a very weird novel, but actually thinking about like class and, and things like depression and affect, it's kind of fascinating. But I, I read it without a pencil. <laughs> um, and then uh, that was the last big, I think. Oh, no, I read um, A Sentimental Education by Flaubert this summer. Um, and I read it in English. But one of the things that gets me into a different mode of reading is I, I can read Spanish and French well. And I don't really work on them. Um, but so it's it's like a different kind of attentive reading because I'm not, especially in Spanish, it's I'm not fluent. Um, I would not say I'm fluent <laughs> at all. But like I so it's a different form of attention. French, I can read much more quickly. Um, but again, it's like just paying attention to like, what is this word? And how is this sentence put together? And like, wait, you can do that grammatically? I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I'm reading this novel that a mutual friend of ours actually recommended to me by Cristina Rivera Garza. Um, actually, he borrowed it or loaned it to me. So it's um, in English, it would be No One Will See Me Cry uh, from 1999. It's um, set in Mexico City at the turn of the 20th century. Anyway, it's like, I'm not going to do anything with this except like enjoy it and work my Spanish, learn something new about Mexico City at the turn of the century and um, among other things. So um, yeah, that's one of the ways I kind of read for pleasure or without a pencil in hand, like go old or go into a different language. Um, or I don't know, sometimes I can just do it, you know, just turn a switch in my brain and be like, I might forget this tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just going to read it um, to be in it. 
I love that. So gosh, from you've taken us on this remarkable journey um, from, you know, Poconos, and of Green Gables, um, read college, um, art and data sets, transdisciplinary environmental studies, shimmering identities. My goodness, thank you, Heather, so much for taking the time to share your journey. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was a pleasure. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.